Good afternoon. Welcome to Thinking on Sunday. Um, this is the regular talks on ethics, politics, and society that. Um, what? That's my voice. I can't help that. <laughs> I'm going to step away from the microphone about here. Um, where was I? Politics, society, and ethics, uh, run by the Conway Hall Ethical Society, uh, an, an organisation that's been running for almost 100 years, longer than that if you count the old place. Um, who are concerned with spreading the thoughts of ethics and philosophy with the public. Members can talk to me about my definition about that later. Um, who's not been here before for one of our talks? Welcome, hi. So we're practically every fortnight, not counting bank holidays. We have regular speakers on various topics of, as I say, politics, society and ethics. Let's just shift that. Um, our speaker today is Jonathan H. Marks, um, speaking on the perils of the public-private partnership in healthcare and uh, other concerns of the market entering into uh, health concerns. I'm going to stealthily do this. Uh, Jonathan is a bioethicist and barrister and the author of The Perils of Partnership, um, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity and Public Health. Unfortunately, our bookseller has not come along with copies of his book. I am very, very sorry. <laughs> I'm expecting him to burst in in a moment. Otherwise, you, you said you had flyers. I have flyers. Really hope we don't... Really, really hope you, uh, we don't need to use those. He's currently the director of the Bioethics Programme at Penton State University and an academic member of Matrix Chambers, which um, obviously I'm seeing lots of long leather jackets, but it's probably not about that at all. Um, do please, speaking on the perils, of uh, the perils of partnership in public health, Jonathan H. Marks. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for that very kind introduction. How is the volume now? Okay. Um, I want to also thank Scott and Jim Walsh for uh, the invitation to speak today, and I want to thank you especially for turning up on what is a beautiful day outside with many other competing activities. Um, so I normally don't believe in reading, but I'm just going to start with a sentence or two just to give you a sense of the, the voice in the book, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the content. So you might say that I suckled at the breast of industry. A few days before I was born, a sales rep gave my father 12 months of, quote, baby milk. My father was a GP, and the rep believed that if physicians were giving the company's formula to their own babies, they were far more likely to recommend it to their patients. So mother's milk, was SMA, simulated milk adapted. And that was really the beginning of all my psychological problems. Um, and I can say that without guilt because my mother is stuck in a taxi and not here yet. Um, in childhood, I continued to benefit from the largesse of industry. My father gave me the pads, the pens, pads, rulers, and other small gifts from various drug companies that the reps left with them after they had told him about the benefits of their drugs. By the time I was seven years old, the words diuretic, beta blocker, and antihypertensive were all part of my lexicon. Now, in time, I learned to pay for my own pens and slide rules or rulers. Um, I studied law and I became a barrister and I thought very little about my experience until uh, one day in the late 90s, I was in the car park of the European Court of Justice and I learned about this woman, Nancy Olivieri, 
who was a researcher, a physician and a researcher involved in the clinical trials of a new drug she was developing, a drug sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. And when she started to think that the drug was more toxic and less effective than she originally thought, and she wanted to reconsent all the patients in the clinical trial, the drug company left her threatening messages on her voicemail. And from there, it spiraled downhill and resulted in a number of uh, cases on both sides of the Atlantic. And I won't tell you much more than that, other than to say that that was the beginning of a, an interest which has really lasted for the better part of two decades about the ways in which corporations influence public health research and policy making. And there are many industries that I'm interested in, um, the food and soda industry, the pharmaceutical industry, um, tobacco, and now we have, of course, vaping or e-cigarettes, and the alcohol industry, just to name a few. And um, you have probably seen, and these, by the way, as, as you know, are the industries that I discuss in the book, and you have probably seen headlines like these. This one is actually now from close to a decade ago. Um, it refers to what were called the responsibility deal networks. This was when instead of regulating industries, the uh, Department of Health figured that the best way to achieve its goals was to partner with corporations. And so voluntary pledges were crafted on behalf of um, various industry sectors. But these pledges were drafted by the companies themselves. And so you, the headline, as you see, was McDonald's and PepsiCo to help write UK health policy. Um, you may also have noticed um, in our parks in London and in Glasgow and many other places throughout the United Kingdom, Kingdom a major soda company is sponsoring activities under the rubric of Park Lives. You can see the symbol is a white bottle cap with the familiar trademark of the company's bottle in the middle as well as the company um, name. These are exercise initiatives designed to burnish the reputation of the soda company, to place an emphasis on personal responsibility, quote unquote, for obesity, and to downplay the role of the company's own products in the obesity epidemic uh, in, the, in Britain, in the US, and in many other companies beyond. It prompted uh, a general practitioner, a GP in Glasgow, in an article in the uh, BMJ to ask the question, is Coca-Cola's anti-obesity scheme the real thing, quote unquote. More recently, you've probably seen headlines about Public Health England, another public body, partnering with Drinkaware, a company, uh, an entity rather, which depends on money from the alcohol industry. And the idea is that this partnership should give rise to an information campaign. But the alcohol industry has a particular way of wanting us to think about its products. Hence the message and the emphasis on drinking responsibly. Invariably, you see, whatever the industry is, the message is it's not our products that are the problem. It's your responsibility to use them properly. And so this reflects, in my view, the larger problem, which is these collaborations with industry frame public health problems and their solutions in ways that are most favorable to the corporate sponsor and the corporate partner. So again, it becomes personal responsibility, not the role of corporate marketing products and other strategies. 
Um, again, another recent headline, this time criticizing Birmingham uh, for partnering with a tobacco company in order to position its e-cigarettes as a, quote, smoking cessation aid. And even though the city said you can't tell people that we are in a partnership, the company actually said, we've partnered with Birmingham, wouldn't you like to do the same? So we see these relationships time and time again with a variety of companies in the food sector, the beverage sector, um, the alcohol sector, cigarettes and vaping. And these relationships are often criticized as though they were individual relationships. And the point that I make clear in the book is they're not individual relationships. They're parts of webs of relationships built by corporations as part of their strategies of influence. And we can't understand the full implications of them until we start to see them as these webs of relationships and not isolated incidents. And the best way, I think, to illustrate that is to give you an example from the other side of the Atlantic, which I'm going to show you is very relevant to the UK. So in these examples that I put up on the slides, now they're all cases of corporations whose products are seen to be exacerbating a public health problem, right? Fast food, soda, alcohol, e-cigarettes, and smoking more generally. But often people will say to me, well, what about partnering with a pharmaceutical company? After all, they're also trying to improve public health, surely. So let's talk about opioids. This is OxyContin, a drug you've heard about, I'm sure. It's a drug my father took in the last months of his life when he had a cancer diagnosis. And of course, we didn't have to worry about weaning my father off this drug because he had terminal cancer. But it wasn't good enough for the pharmaceutical companies to sell this drug to people with terminal cancer because they knew there was a larger patient base. They wanted people who had all kinds of non-terminal chronic pain and acute pain to be taking the drug too. And so here's the message that the opioid companies wanted you to hear. They wanted you to hear that indeed these drugs could be effective in cases beyond terminal cancer patients, even though there isn't evidence of long-term efficacy for chronic conditions. What they wanted you to believe also was that there should be no maximum dose for opioids. They also wanted you to believe that the risks of addiction and abuse were overblown, and that physicians who were concerned about addiction and abuse were suffering from what one drug company characterized as opiophobia. They then stigmatized patients as the, pr the problem, quote unquote, abusers, quote unquote, and worse. So, in the last 20 years, the slide says 399,000, but the figure is now in excess of 418,000 Americans have died from overdoses and counting. The death toll increases by 130 a day. And you can see from that slide the incredible trajectory in recent years. That is not an accident. It is a reflection of a concerted strategy of opioid companies to weave what I and others call webs of influence. Relationships, partnerships, and other interactions 
with doctors and researchers, with universities and teaching hospitals, with patient advocacy groups, medical professional associations, medical journals, legislators and policymakers, and public health agencies. And you can imagine them all represented in this web of influence. Not as pretty a web as the photographer who, who provided the cover for the book, but it should give you an idea. So let me talk just a little about each of these actors. In court filings in Massachusetts, the Attorney General of Massachusetts has shown the physicians who prescribed opioids to patients after meeting with a drug rep were 10 times more likely to have prescribed to a patient who would subsequently die of an overdose than patients who prescribed opioids without seeing a drug rep. In public health, there is very little evidence as strong as the correlation between smoking and lung cancer. But in the same court filings, there is evidence that if you have been on opioids for more than a year, the likelihood of you dying from an overdose is greater than the likelihood of you getting lung cancer from smoking. But it wasn't enough for pharmaceutical companies to create relationships through drug reps with physicians. They realized there were other avenues too. So at the very same time, they funded patient groups and professional associations. In this report from the US Senate, Senator McCaskill and others described the ways in which a small number of opioid companies gave $9 million, a drop in the ocean to drug companies, but huge sums of money to patient um, advocacy organizations and professional medical associations. They gave them to 14 groups, and what do those groups do? They drafted guidelines, they made recommendations reflecting the industry's claims that the risks of abuse were overblown and that these drugs had a place in patients who were not suffering from terminal illnesses. When policymakers and regulators tried to draft their own guidelines, tightening up on opioid prescribing, these patient advocacy groups and medical professional associations made representations saying, no, don't tighten up on prescribing. So they were the unwitting henchmen of the pharmaceutical companies. And in case this sounds like just an American problem, there was in the BMJ in the last month an article exploring the relationships between a number of patient advocacy organizations and the pharmaceutical sector. Now that study does not focus on the opioid industry, but the data is available um, in a, an appendix to the article. And my first examination of that data suggests a similar trend here. You can see a number of companies who are developing or selling opioids, interacting with public health groups, patient advocacy organizations, medical professional associations, giving them money. So the seeds are being sown here at this very moment too. Once again, it's not enough for doctors to influence doctors and patient groups. What about the research itself? 
And so the opioid companies gave money to a number of, main, uh, of uh, major organizations in the US, universities and teaching hospitals. That sweatshirt you see is from the Sackler School of Graduate Sciences. The Sackler family is the family that owes Purdue Pharma, the manufacturers of OxyContin, um, the leading opioid in the US. Um, they, the company, their company gave money, Purdue gave money to Massachusetts General Hospital, to Tufts School of Medicine. They started paying clinics with the name Purdue Pharma in the name of the clinic, all perpetuating the message that these companies' drugs were safe and effective beyond terminal cancer patients. And indeed, the last building you see without the label is a building at the University of Buffalo. That was a building named after the CEO of another drug company who has just been convicted of racketeering for the company's marketing practices related to opioids. Um, practices which involve, by the way, promoting the drug using a corporate executive who was a former lap dancer um, at an event in a bar in Chicago. Again, already we have pretty much an effective network of influence, but that wasn't enough. The pharmaceutical companies also sought to lobby and make campaign contributions to legislators and policymakers. In the US, there are two committees, one in the House and one in the Senate, charged with responding to the opioid crisis. The committee in the House 90% of its members had taken campaign contributions from companies under investigation for exacerbating, exacerbating the opioid crisis. And in the Senate, it was almost two-thirds of the members of those committees. So that doesn't seem to promote the kinds of policy interventions that might threaten the interests of their corporate donors and sponsors. These strategies had a very real effect not confined to the United States. This is a policy document from the World Health Organization produced seven or eight years ago. Guidelines on the pharmacological treatment of persisting pain in children. This document says that when treating children, there is no maximum dose of opioids. And it also repeats the framing of Purdue Pharma that physicians who are concerned about addiction and abuse are experiencing opiophobia. So we have a crisis that has been created and exacerbated by partnerships and relationships with the pharmaceutical industry. And how are we responding to the crisis on the other side of the pond? The National Institute of Health director launched an initiative in which he announced that they will be partnering with the pharmaceutical industry in order to solve the opioid crisis. A framework, by the way, which Purdue Pharma, the main architect of the crisis among the drug companies, loves too. We manufacture prescription opioids. They say, how could we not help fight the prescription and illicit opioid drug abuse? <coughs> no one solution will end the crisis. We want everyone engaged to know that you have a partner in Purdue Pharma. At the very same time as they place this ad in all the major papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, 
The company was still working to promote the market on opioids, right? This time, wanting to get patients at both ends. It wants to sell the kinds of opioids that get people addicted, and at the same time, it also wants to get in the market of drugs to treat people with opioid addiction. So the standard way of thinking about these problems, the relationships between corporations and public bodies, is to say, enter the relationships, but just disclose them, right? Here you can see the slide of the physician who says to the patient, try this, I just bought 100 shares. Now I have a colleague actually who does research on what happens when physicians disclose these relationships with their patients. And two things happen. First, having disclosed, they feel the ability to gild the lily because they put you on notice. And then secondly, the patients are put in a difficult situation because they don't want to signal their distrust of their physician. Now, it's certainly the case that it would be good for legislators and policymakers to know that when patient advocacy groups were saying, don't tighten opioid prescribing, that those groups had received money from industry. But disclosure of the relationships is necessary, but not sufficient to solve the problem. It was hardly a secret that Purdue Pharma and Sackler were giving money to all these universities. Their names were chiseled all over the buildings. But those relationships still had influence. So in my view, it's time for another approach. We are told that collaboration is good, that compromise is good, and that consensus is good. We're also told that conflict is bad. But that is far too simplistic a view. You can't know whether conflict is good or bad unless you know who is fighting, why they're fighting, and how they're fighting. And if I reach a compromise with Scott, and that hurts somebody else in the room, especially someone I have a duty to protect, that compromise is ethically problematic. So we need a much more sophisticated view of conflict and compromise. Sometimes the best relationship between two entities, the one that promotes and protects public health, is not collaboration, but a relationship of tension, and it's sometimes direct conflict. And I want to be clear, I'm not arguing that governments are inherently good and that corporations are inherently evil. No, each is capable of good or ill. But there are fundamental reasons why the default relationship between governments, public health agencies, public health NGOs on the one hand, and corporations on the other should be at arm's length. And let me see if I can persuade you of why that should be the case. Anyone who's studied law or civics knows that we have three branches of government. We have parliament that makes the laws. We have the executive branch that puts the law into action. And we have the judiciary that holds the other two branches accountable 
that also has responsibility for interpreting the laws in the UK. It has responsibility to determine whether those laws are compatible with the Human Rights Act, for example. And on the other side of the pond, it has the responsibility to determine whether laws are constitutional. The judges can't perform those functions at all, or indeed with any credibility, if they're partnering with the other two branches of government. And in q and I'll tell you an example of a former Home Secretary who was trying to push that very notion that the judiciary should consult, should act as consultants to the executive branch, a ludicrous notion. So we totally get the need for struggle and tension and at times direct conflict in the public sphere between the branches of government. But we also get it in the private sector too, right? The doctrine I just told you about is sometimes called, in the public sphere, sometimes called separation of powers. And in the private sphere, we have what's called, in this country and in Europe, competition law. And why do we have competition law? Well, we have competition law because, let's imagine two airlines that should be competing get together and say, hey, let's not compete. Let's find a way of cooperating. And let's imagine that one says, look, we'll take the London-Dublin route you take the London-Edinburgh route, and we won't compete. Well, what happens then? We, the consumers, are hurt because there's no competition, and we pay more for, our, for our, um, our flights. This kind of collusion is what um, uh, the Supreme Court in the US has called the supreme evil of antitrust. That's their term for the equivalent of competition law. So we don't think the relationship between corporations should be one of cozying up. We think they should struggle and compete with each other too. So how did we get into the scenario where we recognize that tension and conflict between the branches of government, the public sphere, is necessary? Tension, conflict, competition in entities in the private sphere is necessary. But somehow, we think we can solve pressing problems like cancer, climate change, obesity, the opioid epidemic, by having the public and the private partner with each other? No, I argue. The default relationship in that space, too, should also be one of separation. You may remember several years ago, Nancy Reagan, in response to the drug crisis in the US, said, just say no. A highly offensive message, by the way, to patients who were addicted to opioids because their physician prescribed them with those drugs. And indeed, I have a fellow bioethicist who was involved in a motorbike accident and was put on opioids, became addicted, and when he called up his physician and said, get me off them, the physician said, that's not our problem. Our problem was just to manage your pain. Go and see someone else. He's just written a book about his experiences called In Pain, and I encourage you to read it. So just say no is not a great message to those patients, but it's a good message for public health agencies who are thinking of partnering with pharmaceutical companies and other entities to solve public health problems. And if you think that's too American message, you should know that Grange Hill, for those of you who remember, perpetuated the very same message just a few months later. We do have three public health crises, right? One is pain management, another is opioid addiction, and a third is the addiction of policymakers.
to partnering with industry. And we can't tackle the first two unless we also tackle the third. But just saying no to corporate partnerships doesn't mean the end of the road. Public health agencies should start thinking about what their strategy is going forward. Ten years ago, some guy in a pull neck thought we should all have a smartphone in our pocket, right? Now he's right. We need a public body strategy as ambitious as that, but without partnership with the private sector. We need a public strategy that says, how do we get from here to where we want to be? It might not happen overnight, but we really can get there if we think about the importance of public funding, of research, and that might be funding that comes, for example, from a tax directed at corporations whose products or practices are exacerbating a public health crisis. And you could assess the tax on the basis of their contribution to that crisis. That would bring the money into public health without allowing them to burnish their reputations at the same time. So there are many other, uh, and one other thing I should say is, it's also possible for public entities to partner with each other. So right now, all across the US, public, health, public bodies, attorneys general from various states are partnering with each other to sue the opioid crises because they are bearing the brunt of the costs. But they could have been state level partnerships in advance of the crisis to try and promote public health. So saying no to industry doesn't mean saying no to solving the problem. There are many other solutions. And I look forward to talking with you about how we get there from here. Thank you.